News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. The U.S.-Mexico-Canada Agreement, or USMCA. The U.S.-Mexico-Canada Agreement. The new NAFTA. The CUSMA USMCA TMEC Free Trade Agreement. Notice that we have three names in the title, and that is because each country want to have their own name associated to the agreement. I think it's just easier to call it the new NAFTA. I think that is just the most convenient thing. I mean, it was all we were talking about, right? When the negotiations were underway back in 2018, it was, I think, stressful for a lot of people, a lot of industries waiting and watching this happen, waiting to see if a new trade deal would take shape between Canada, Mexico, and the United States. Well, they did manage to hammer one out, and it comes into effect today. So to talk more about what's going to change, we are joined now by Andrew DiCapua, who is a senior associate at Export Development Canada. Andrew, thank you very much for being here. It's great to, it's great to join you, Timmy. Happy well, Canada Day. Happy Canada Day to you as well. <laughs> so it seems fitting there's this new big trade agreement coming into effect. What are the big changes that will be different from what we had before with NAFTA? Sure. So I'll just start. I mean, it is a really great day for Canada. It's also a great day for North America. I mean, the past three years have been a long negotiation process. Uh, Uncertainty is at an all-time high by every metric. And what this does is it solidifies the rules for the future relationship with the United States and Mexico, our two most important trading partners, especially during a time of COVID-19, uh, Canada really is in a better position uh, for a strong economic recovery now that the rules have been set. Some of the main changes, I mean, uh, of the agreement really are that it maintains the the large duty-free market access that we benefited from as Canadians. Um, it modernizes the agreement to some extent. It includes chapters on digital trade. It strengthens intellectual property protections. It also includes commitments to not put tariffs on you know software and data which is now really important in our economy things that really were not in their line of sight back in 1995 on the original nafta right so mm-hmm. it also provides uh, more dialogue on smes which are really a large part of anyone's economy now and it strengthens north american rules of origin so it really bolsters um, our supply chains and requires more inputs from all three countries does in the it, production of automobiles, et cetera. Does it tie us closer together, these three countries? Yes, I think so. Um, you know, we are really um, an important uh, contributor to the autom- automotive manufacturing um, supply chain. Same with Mexico. And not even that, um, you know, this really, the past three years have really shown that Yes, you can have your differences, but at the at the end of the day, we rely on each other. And this uh, coming into effect uh, today really shows a lot of progress. So will the average Canadian notice this, Andrew? And if so, in what way? Yeah, I mean, you know what? This was really a, a lot of mechanical changes to the, you know, to the NAFTA, which was, which was uh, signed in 1995. I mean, the average consumer won't really feel the immediate effects of it. You could in the future feel the effects through obviously the, the, the strengthening of the supply chains um, for automobiles. But really, a lot of automakers have really had plants in all three countries to begin with. So 
um, there may not be uh, any change in, in the price of an automobile. But really, one of the biggest things is going to be for e-commerce. Uh, there was an increase in what's called the de minimis value, which okay. is the low value for customs where they don't collect any duties. So that's been raised to 150 Canadian dollars. So now if you buy something online from the United States uh, or from anywhere around the world, if it's less than $150 and it's shipped by a courier, so FedEx, UPS, et cetera, there's no duties that you have to pay when, when you're importing. So that's good for e-commerce folks. Um, and now in an increased time where people are becoming more digital, it's definitely going to become more relevant. There right. could be uh, more choice on the dairy front um, since we're in a supply managed system. Uh, you know, we did give up some access to U.S. producers. So Canadians could have a little bit more choice on the shelf. That was a big one, though, wasn't it? The the dairy situation. Uh, it, it felt like there was going to be more happening with that. But would you But protecting the Canadian dairy industry seemed very important for the government. Is that still pretty much intact? I mean, I would say so. Um, I mean, obviously, giving up more um, space in our supply management system, I mean, is definitely a concession. But at the same time, we gave up similar access to our partners in the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, and, you know, it's, it's unfortunately, um, you know, it's unfortunately the way it has to happen. But we also gained some access to the United States's, um, you know, very protectionist uh, agriculture system as well. So, I mean, we, we really, the, the, U, the Canadian government really did a good job in terms of trying to make sure that we get something out of this as well and protecting our, our supply management system, which was a big priority. Right. So even though now where the border is shut down mostly for people, is trade still managing to go back and forth? Like, have we had any hiccups with that? Not that I've heard of. I mean, yes, the, the border is closed for non-essential travel, but trade is still happening. It's been a very tough year for trade um, in the numbers, but uh, it is still uh, definitely happening, and we hope that we see a rebound later this year. All right, so for now, people need to know that if they want to do a little more shopping, there's a little bit more that's duty-free, but other than that, it seems like it's business as usual with this new NAFTA. That's right. I mean, but for businesses, the fact that we're able to have uh, an agreement in place, it really does reduce some uncertainty that has been lingering for years. So in a challenging trade environment where people don't know where to go, the United States and Mexico are reliable trading partners. And this will really help businesses find more opportunity uh, when we get out of this COVID-19 period. All right, Andrew, thank you. Thanks very much, and have a great Canada Day. You too. That is Andrew DiCapua, who is a Senior Associate at Export Development Canada, uh, talking about changes, not like not much that we would notice, though, uh, but a lot for businesses and, and people who trade back and forth between Canada, Mexico, and the United States, because the new NAFTA takes effect today. But the increase in the border exemption, I know, will impact few, a lot of people. That's the one thing I think Canadians pay attention to when it comes to trade agreements, is how much can we bring back across the border that is essentially duty-free? Well, now $150, that has been increased to, even for e-commerce. But again, things you feel like that that's more of an impact in more kind of, quote, normal times, right? Uh, but if you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. 
All right, let's talk a little hockey today, shall we? Word is, hearing from some hockey insiders who've been reporting this on social media, that the NHL uh, is finally going to make a decision on their hub cities, right? People thought it was coming last week. And sounds like it's down to just Edmonton and Toronto at this point. There is no safe, so to speak, uh, American city for them to choose. Uh, And really, at this point, you got to go with what's left, right? Edmonton and Toronto are the safest bets if they're not going to want to go by our rules here in Vancouver. Uh, So good for Edmonton and Toronto. But what about other types of hockey, not just major leagues, not just NHL? What about the Western Hockey League? Well, the future of junior hockey, a bit of a question mark right now. The Western Hockey League and the Vancouver Giants, they just don't have the kind of resources that are required to quarantine teams and trainers and that kind of travel that's being talked about at the upper levels. So what's going to happen next? Well, CKNW and Global News reporter Janet Brown spoke with Vancouver Giants owner Ron Toygo about what the future looks like for them right now. Well, I don't think we know when the season will start. We still... Uh, believe there is going to be a season start and um, so we're just you know really taking it uh, lead from the provincial government we are in discussions with them and they're keep, keeping abreast of what's going on and uh, you know as long as things continue to improve as they have in, in British Columbia in particular I, I you know I think we'll we'll probably be able to do it sooner than than others will unfortunately there's others that aren't doing as well as we are in BC particularly south of the border and Washington and Oregon, uh, which are in our league, which I think is going to be the biggest issue is how we deal with that. Um, I think there's going to be a point in time where you're allowed to have um, 25 to 50% capacity in in our buildings um, sooner than later, and um, and then where we go from there. But I think, um, you know, the the Bonnie Henry and, and and her team has done an outstanding job to put BC in a position to be able to move forward probably sooner than others. So uh, you're hopeful that there will be a season. Do you expect it to start on time or is that still up in the air as well then? I I don't think it'll start on time, but I, I do believe that it, it'll start, you know, probably I could see it starting in November or, or even December. I think it's just really going to be a lot predicated on what happens in the fall. If, if, if there is a second wave, and and how we how we deal with that and uh if there isn't a second wave and things are under control i think things will start a lot sooner if there is one then i think we'll be pushed back um you know until you know december january so you're hoping uh maybe expecting capacity in the building 25 to 50 percent is that correct i think that's what we're, they're working towards and uh you know it's still going to be not not uh it's still going to be a financial burden to every team at that point. But, you know, at some point we have to make this thing go. Our players have to be able to play somewhere. I mean, a lot of them are counting on careers. A lot of them are, you know, having to, to play somewhere. And um, it, it appears minor hockey is going to be able to get going as there is no fans in the building. And um, so at the end of the day, it's, it's uh, you know, health and for everybody, including the, our players and, and fans, but also our players have to have a place to play. And how do you th- envision this happening involving the U.S. teams and crossing the border? Well, that's going to be one of our challenges on, on how we do deal with that. And, you know, that'll be completely up to the league. Um, it's uh, it's definitely one of one of the many challenges that we're faced with right now, but I'm sure there'll be a solution once we know... Um, 
that we're able to play here. And, uh, you know, if they're able to play there, but uh, there's still issues with the border, then, uh, you know, you might have to wait till the second half of the season before you're playing U.S. teams. So perhaps maybe just playing Canadian teams then? Until until you're, you're able to cross the border. Okay. That's a possible scenario. Mm-hmm. So say, say the maximum of 50 people are still only allowed to gather. Could, could you envision having a season maybe without any fans in the building, perhaps? No, unlike the professional sports, uh, we don't have a TV contract that pays those kind of revenues to offset the uh, you know, our operating budgets are you know, in the 4 to $5 million range now, and it's, uh, you need to have uh, people in the stands to, to off, offset those expenses. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's not like uh, other junior leagues where, you know, they, they pay to play. Um, they don't have the travel we have. They don't have the, the level of coaching and, and uh, support that we have for our, our level. And, uh, so it, it becomes very difficult to play without fans in the building where, you know, the lower junior leagues uh, are able to operate kind of like minor hockey. And uh, so they they have, you know, somewhat more of an ability to play with, with uh, none to fewer fans in the building. Ron, based on what is going on in the United States and, and the U.S. teams, Seattle, etc., Portland, Tri-Cities, are, are you worried for the future of those teams? Well, actually, I'm worried for the future of the whole league. And uh, it's if, if uh, let's say, if we were to have a lockdown for the entire season, um, there's going to be, you know, a lot of damage to the overall league, to all, to all, to all levels of hockey if it was to be shut down. And uh, not just financially, but, you know, the development of players and uh, the consequences will, will, could be severe. So, yeah, I think uh, we're, we're concerned about everything still. Um like I said, it's it's you know we're doing a great job in BC uh, as far as dealing with this thing. Um, what's going on south of the border is, is somewhat concerning, and uh, you know just as you thought they were getting a handle on it, things are actually worse now, and uh, it's it's hard to comprehend with um, everything that's going on, and then people to just be ignoring it is something to you know you you just can't see see how. The U.S. is operating that way compared to what's going on up here. You know, a lot of Canada, like Alberta or like um, Saskatchewan and Manitoba, virtually don't have any cases, and uh, and you know, Alberta's has certainly got a grip on it, like BC does. And well, I think by August we're going to have a pretty good read on the situation on where it's at, and um, I think at that point in time we should probably be able to have more of an idea of where we're going to go from here. Do you see your training camp uh, taking place in August or early September? I would think that uh, we would hope to have our guys back in town by September. And, um, you know, they, there's a school that they have to be able to go to, um, provided schools are open again like they appear to be. And um, our players need to get in a routine. And so, I mean, even if uh, we could get them back by September and, and you start playing in you know October, November, that, that scenario would work as well. Okay, so hoping for the best, obviously. We, we certainly are, but it's completely out of our control. This virus is is, is in control, and uh, where we go, uh, you know, like I said, I think we've done a good job here, and if we maintain that, then um, you know we should be able to do something. We just don't know when. 
That is Ron Toygo, owner of the Vancouver Giants, speaking with our Janet Brown. Not a great time right now for a lot of these junior level teams, whether it's baseball, hockey, you name it. No, uh, no Vancouver Canadians this summer either. And touch and go, as you heard there, for the Vancouver Giants. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, happy Canada Day to everybody out there. I know it's not the same as usual. There won't be huge parties, big barbecues. Some people, I'm sure, will have some smaller get-togethers. No big get-togethers for fireworks, meeting at the plazas, or anything like that. But... There is still some stuff out there that is going on for Canada Day. And in fact, uh, City White Rock has some stuff going on. We thought we'd learn more about that this morning. So joining us now is Scott Christensen, the White Rock Deputy Mayor and Councillor. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi, and happy Canada Day from White Rock. Well, same to you. So tell me, what does White Rock have going on today? Well, uh, as you know, uh, the the city is open, but we're discouraging people from uh, coming down uh, if... if, uh, and we, what we have today is a virtual Canada Day instead. Uh, so it's the virtual Canada Day by the Bay celebrations, and they take place tonight between 7 and 9 p.m. Oh, okay. So what would people see if they tuned in for that? Well, we hope it's going to be a good show. Um, we have uh, the event is hosted by Michelle Partridge of our own drama class. You can connect to it on our Facebook page or YouTube. And it starts with uh, singing from Mr. Canada himself, Mr. O Canada, Mark Donnelly, who uh, is a oh. local resident, and uh, he'll be singing O Canada. And we really hope and encourage people to sing from their balconies and porches at 7 p.m. And uh, that starts off the show. And we just want to give out thanks to uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry and our, all the uh, medical professionals in, in our, our local hospitals for uh, keeping us all safe. You know, it's really been quite remarkable about how creative people get, hasn't it been, Scott? Even for Canada Day, it's like we're not, we're still going to celebrate. We're just going to find different ways to do that. We're going to do it in a safe way and uh, uh, limit our interactions, keep our bubbles small, but have a lot of fun for sure. I, I know so, there was some nervousness in White Rock about kind of reopening the pier and everything. How has that been? Uh, it's been good. Uh, people, for the most part, really get it, which is fantastic. But I, I do want to remind people, it's it's tough. We have lanes, uh, so you can go in one direction up the pier and then back down the other. But, you know, people don't always get it. So just want to remind people to limit their, uh, keep maintain safe physical distances. And uh, uh, personally, myself, I would recommend for, for Canada Day to uh, wear a mask. It shows uh, respect for your others and, uh, and keeps everybody safe. Uh, yeah, for Wouldn't sure. Wouldn't it be great if we could find a Canada Day branded mask somewhere? I'm sure they they exist for they sure. Must, but, right? uh, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen any of those out there either. Uh, I, so- I should mention also that we have uh, musical acts uh, as part of our virtual day. So okay. uh, we have the Washboard Union, who's going to be uh, treating us to their wonderful music. Nice. Yeah, it's a, a signature three part harmony. Uh, they've become one of Canada's preeminent country bands and have won over twenty eight awards, including Juno and Country Music Association awards. So. That's great. So. Where can people find this online? Um, you can find it on our city's, the White Rock City uh, uh, Facebook page. There's links there, and also our YouTube channel. For so you can uh, check it out, and you can check us out on Twitter at uh, at White Rock City, and uh, all the all those things will get you there. So you, know, you can go to whiterockcity.ca 
slash Canada Day. Okay, sounds like a plan. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good day and enjoy your Canada Day. That is Scott Christensen, the Deputy Mayor of White Rock, also a councillor there. They're planning a virtual Canada Day celebration, as you heard there, uh, starting this evening, and you can check that out. And you know what? There's some national virtual day ones as well. Ottawa doing the same. And it sounds like this uh, singing O Canada at 7 o'clock is going to be a big deal. I'm definitely going to be checking this out at 7 o'clock this evening. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, happy Canada Day to everybody out there. Uh, We just heard about what they're going to be doing in White Rock for Canada Day. They're doing their own version of a virtual celebration online. Uh, But, you know, this is probably one of the few Canada Days well, ever in our history where we are not gathering for a large celebration to commemorate July the 1st. bit challenging, I would imagine, and for the federal government, of course, as well. So joining us now is MP Carla Qualtro from Delta, Federal Minister of Employment, Workforce Development and Disability Inclusion. Thank you very much for being here this morning. Good morning and happy Canada Day. Happy Canada Day to you as well. It's a bit it's a bit odd, I would imagine, in Ottawa today when there's not going to be kind of the big celebration. You know, it certainly is different. And I know we've gone out of our way to provide some virtual experiences for Canadians that are going to be really exciting. There's a big show tonight at 8 p.m. on, on CBC. But it is very different. There's no big gathering on Parliament Hill. I'm actually home here in Delta. There's... You know, I must cut four to five cakes every year on Canada Day and love cutting every single one of them. It's it's the favorite it's my favorite holiday. I absolutely love Canada Day and it's gonna look very different for all of us this year. Right. How What's the mood like then within government as well? Because the last couple of months hasn't been easy for anybody uh, trying to navigate kind of these uncertain times there. Is there any kind of a sense of turning the corner at all in Ottawa? Well, you know, like everyone, we've been working hard and we're trying really, we're doing our best to do the best for Canadians. Um, you know, everyone's a bit tired and we're all looking forward to the summer. But I think, I think yes, is the honest answer to your question. We we see, you know, we see some hopeful numbers uh, from an employment perspective in my job. We seem to be flattening the curb in many places across the country. Um, the weather's nicer. I just, I feel a little more hopeful than I did a month and a half ago. So what do you think Canadians can expect over the next few months? Because we start to think about those programs that were announced and they're going to be coming to an end in the next month or two. Yeah, yes. And, um, and of course, uh, I can't say that we won't continue to be there after those few months, but there is some uncertain times ahead of us. And, you know, to be honest, I think that we've got a long, a long road ahead of us to get back to whatever we get back to, because we don't actually know what that, that will look like. Um, but today is really is about remembering how lucky we are to be Canadian and how um, our shared values and the things that matter to us collectively have helped us get through this pandemic because we take care of each other and we want we work together to fight these big challenges. And I think it's because of the fact that we are Canadian that we're doing so much better than other countries. You know, I was thinking that too. In fact, we talked about it yesterday on the show. What is it, do you think, about the kind of Canadian attitude that made a difference? We, you know, we pride ourselves in Canada um, of having the shared value of um, we take care of each other, you know, and we don't want to, we understand that that we're all responsible for each other. And we look around and see our neighbors struggling and we pitch in and, you know, my grandmother is important to me, but so is your grandmother. 
So when I wear a mask, it's out of respect, not just for my family, but for yours as well. And, and we all just look at tackling this crisis with that, with that attitude. And I think it's been pivotal. We also really respect public office holders. Um, we, have, we, we have confidence in our experts. We rely on science. All these things have served us very well over the past four months. Do you feel like as well over the last four months, uh, we've almost kind of cemented that attitude as well? A little bit. Yeah, I guess so. Now that you say it, I think that we've always had, um, we're very kind of humble in our pride, our national pride. And every once in a while, it comes out and bubbles over. Think of Vancouver 2010. Canada Day is also one of those days where we just get to be unapologetically proud to be Canadian and wear our red and white and smile and, you know, greet everybody with a happy, happy Canada Day. And and it's lovely. It is lovely. I hope people do get to have a moment like that today. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. And and seriously, we, we're very lucky to be Canadian, and I think everybody in Canada knows that. I think we are feeling that this year, for sure. Thank you so much for your time. Take care. That is Carla Qualtro, the Federal Minister of Employment, Workforce Development, and Disability Inclusion, talking about how, yes, this is a different Canada Day, for sure. And, you know, something that we were talking about there um, has resonated the last little while. It is that I think Canadians do, uh, British Columbians in particular right now, take pride in how hard we have worked to flatten the curve of COVID-19. And I know in BC, when we see those results, there's a real, you know, when we, we talk about gatherings and outbreaks and that kind of thing, there is a fear that, uh-oh, like, you know, we don't want that to get out of hand because right away we think, well, we've worked so hard, we've done so much. So that tempers the, oh, I want to get together with a large group of people or I want to be able to go do this, which is kind of the attitude that you have seen elsewhere, particularly down in the United States. And I think that that pride that we feel, and yes, we listen to our health officials here. If they tell us this is a safe thing to do, this is what we're going to do. We have really embraced that. And yes, that is something to be proud of on this Canada Day for sure. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, here's some good news for you. Thousands of pounds of food and household goods from Army and Navy are on their way to people in need. Now, we know the Army and Navy stores have closed, but they still had some food and items uh, that were there with them. So the company reached out to a local food bank and told them to come take whatever they needed, right? Pretty welcome, I would imagine. We wanted to talk more about how desperately these things are needed, uh, what Army and Navy provided, and much more. Joining us now is Matthew Campbell, uh, the director of the Cloverdale Community Kitchen. Matthew, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Well, this sounds like quite a great thing Army and Navy did. What kind of a difference did it make? It it made a huge difference uh, when you uh, go through, and uh, it was surprising there was so much uh, food in one section of the Army, Navy, and Langley, and uh, we brought our volunteers over, and uh, the shelves were still completely full of all this food. They grabbed it off the shelves, put it into boxes, and it filled pretty much a tube bed full of, uh, of food. Okay, that's great, though, but how long will it last for people who use the Cloverdale Community Kitchen? Uh, well, the neat thing about this is that uh, a lot of the food that they had were, uh, were snacks and uh, Chips and uh, people at food banks love snacks just as much as they love healthy food. So uh, they get a bunch of healthy food every week. And then this, uh, all the snack food will be uh, kind of the bonus that uh, they'll get over the week. So it, it's going to last uh, It's gonna last quite a number of weeks because, uh, you know, each person will get right. a few 
eating snacks on top of their healthy food. Nice. Okay, how long have you been doing this, Matthew? Um, so we've, uh, Cultural Community Kitchen has been doing uh, community meals for about uh, six or eight years now. And uh, just in the last uh, about five months, um, just before the pandemic started, we had launched our food bank, not even knowing the pandemic was coming. And uh, now we have uh, 150 to 200 people coming every week for food. Wow, that's a lot of people. So given that you launched right before it started, how, what, have, what kind of a difference did it make in terms of how many people were coming? Have you seen more people come during this time? We have, we have. I mean, we've, we've been serving uh, many people um, with our community meals, so we, and we run a Christmas hamper program that helps about 500 families in the Cloverdale, Langley, and Surrey area. So we know poverty, and we know a lot of our, our, our friends that we help. Um, and we thought that it was just going to be a, a slow start. But then once the pandemic hit, then uh, it, uh, it really changed really quickly. It went from zero to 60 in, in about two seconds. So who's coming then, Matthew? Is it families? Is it people who have lost their jobs? Is it just anybody? Um, anyone, anyone in need can come. Um, we have uh, a, lot of, a lot of teachers that are, uh, that are in poverty. Um, and one of the neat things that we've done is, uh, in connection with the United Way um, of Metro Vancouver in our area, we're making food hampers and actually delivering those to, uh, to seniors in need because a lot of them can't get out and don't want to go on the buses during the pandemic. So we've been delivering a lot of hampers to, uh, to seniors in the area. Right. I imagine, though, it would be pretty challenging right now just keeping up with all that demand. It is. It is. Um, one of the great things was is that... Uh, um, with all the things that we do, um, we, we have hundreds of volunteers, and the first week of the pandemic, um, it was scary because uh, probably about half our volunteers quit in the first week of the pandemic. Ooh. And we really thought there for a week, what are we going to do? Um, but within two weeks of the pandemic, um, for every volunteer we had lost, uh, we had two new volunteers that came. So uh, the community really stepped up. And uh, we, we're, we're just so happy to have so many volunteers helping us. Oh, okay, but you probably still need food, donations. Like, how can people help? And we do, yes. Um, so uh, we take food donations. We take volunteers. Um, yeah, we, we, we definitely need the community's help to keep this going because, you know, every week, tons and tons of food uh, go out of our place. And so uh, it always has to, new food has to come in to replace the food going out. Okay, so where can people find out more information or where can they drop off a donation? Um, so we are in uh, Cloverdale Language, and uh, sorry, so it's, uh, our website is mycck, that's M-Y-C-C-K dot C-A, or you can look us up on Facebook at Cloverdale Community Kitchen, and uh, right, in, uh, right in Cloverdale, you can drop off uh, food at our, uh, at our building um, during business hours. No, Matthew, I guess, are you seeing more like more organizations like yours that are springing up in neighborhoods? Because it used to be that you had, you know, the Surrey Food Bank, but now you have like more individual food banks as well in smaller communities. Yeah, that, that is, uh, I, I think that that um, definitely the pandemic has, uh, has, has caused that to help happen. Um, a lot of people have seen the need during the pandemic and a lot of people want to help. Um, so... Uh, one of the things that the United Way, um, we've we partnered with them, they've launched this uh, thing called the Food Hub Program, and uh, it's all across Metro Vancouver, and they've helped little organizations um, or smaller organizations start smaller local um, food banks. Um, we've been a part of that, but 
we have a bit bigger space than uh, than a lot of these uh, local ones. Um, so we're actually helping um, send food back and forth. So, for instance, yesterday, um, a company in Delta called us up and said that they had uh, two or three skid loads of uh, food. It came into our location, and then we were able to share it with other uh, United Way Food Hub locations throughout the Surrey Langley area. All right, well, you're doing good work out there, Matthew. Listen, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me on. That is Matthew Campbell. He's director of the Cloverdale Community Kitchen. Just look them up online if you're in that area and you think you might be able to help them out. They have really seen demand increase a lot. Can you imagine launching your new food bank effort just before the pandemic hit? Yeah, they have really seen business increase there. So if you can help them out, please do. This is Mornings with Simi tell you about a special program that we heard about for frontline workers. It's becoming increasingly popular. It's at Valley Therapeutic Equestrian Association. Now, they usually provide services to people with disabilities, but then the pandemic struck and they thought, well, wait a minute, we're in a pretty good position here to offer this program to healthcare workers who also need a little help. So to talk more about this and tell us all about it, we're joined now by Lynn Mosley, who's the director of the Valley Therapeutic Equestrian Association. Lynn, thank you so much for being here. Oh, good morning, Simi. Thank you for having me and happy Canada Day. Happy Canada Day to you. So tell me about this program. How does it work? So um, like you just mentioned, uh, we recognize that there is a segment of our population that could really use our help with with the use of our therapy horses. So what we did is we developed a session for frontline workers to come in and enjoy being on a country setting in the fresh air and outdoors in a very empathetic, uh, accepting and an unbiased environment. And what we're aiming to do is provide these frontliners with a break from all the stress and the pressure and anxiety from being on the front lines of the pandemic. And how much take up has there been of this? Well, we have been uh, overwhelmed with uh, responses in a good way. Um, we've, we've had several riders uh, on the property already. Uh, all very, very good experiences, and we're booking into July and August now. Wow, that's impressive. Yes. <laughs> it's and really I, great. And I understand people can participate in this too, right? Like we can donate sessions. That's correct. So when we developed the program, we also thought, well, it's great to be able to provide this service, but what if the frontliner can't afford it? So we quickly, alongside of the program, developed a frontline hero uh, fundraising program. So any member of the public can donate a ride to a frontliner of their choice, or they can donate uh, the cost of a session, and we will match them with a frontliner. Oh, that's nice. What what have you heard, Lynn, from some of the frontline workers who do this? Like, what kind of a difference does it make? Uh, Well, the very first frontliner we had on the property was extremely emotional. She has been separated from her family and friends for some time, been isolating, and uh, she didn't really have an outlet, uh, someone to talk to, uh, you know, any way of releasing that pressure. So when she came on the property, uh, she was very emotional and uh, worked really well with the horse. The horse connected with her and she immediately started to release some of that anxiety and pressure. She was calmed and uh, just just an overall sense of, of well-being. When she left the property, she said, I left in tears. They were happy tears. I guess I oh. needed this more than even I realized. So it was, uh, it was very emotional. Oh, that is so lovely. Now, you said these are therapy horses. What makes a horse a therapy horse? Uh, the therapy horses are, are ones that are usually, they're older. They've been there, done that. They have lots of experience dealing with 
children and adults of all ages and abilities. So they've, they've got this, they understand, they connect with the rider and they just provide this, uh, this, this warm, uh, accepting uh, session where they, it just, it's hard to, you really have to experience it almost. It's quite magical the way that they, 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 they work with people with uh, anxiety, especially. Okay, so now, Lynn, where can people donate? You said people, you've got a fundraiser going. Where can we find out more? All the information is on our website at vtea.ca, and there is a banner on the side of the page that says, Not Today, COVID-19, and then there's <laughs> links there where they can get to the, uh, to the proper page. I like that, Not Today. All right, thank you so <laughs> exactly. much, Lynn. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Simi. Have a great day. You too. That's Lynn Mosley. She's the director of the Valley Therapeutic Equestrian Association. Uh, they kind of pivoted and take, took their program, usually for people with disabilities, and they decided to also use it for frontline healthcare workers who need just a bit of a break, right, to get away from it all. And they have found it's very successful. Check out their website if you would also like to pitch in and help out. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, Canada has had a shrinking international presence for the past couple of decades, something that we seem to talk about during federal elections. It culminated in that failure once again to achieve a seat on the UN Security Council last night, and there, or last month, I should say, and there has been no end to the debate about that. So as we celebrate Canada Day, we thought we would take a moment here to talk about how it is that the world sees us not just how we see ourselves. Now, we've uh, heard about this from Matthew Fisher, Global News commentator and military journalist. He's written a piece on why Canada so desperately needs a foreign policy review, and he joins us now. Matthew, thank you for being here. Well, thank you very much on what uh, we used to call when I was growing up, the semi Dominion Day when oh. we uh, we had the red ensign with the Union yeah. Jack as our flag. That, that just gives your... Uh, uh, listeners, an idea of uh, how old I am. <laughs> well, that's true. Uh, now, we don't call it Dominion Day anymore. I think a lot of people today would be like, what? What was Dominion Day? Uh, but let's talk about the piece that you wrote here, Matthew. Why do you feel that we need a foreign policy review? Well, I think one is urgently needed simply because we don't have any foreign policy. Uh, it's been half a century, really. Uh, there have been two abortive attempts in the last 50 years do something on this. They both went absolutely nowhere and were not very complete documents. So the last time we had a foreign policy review was in, I believe, the first term of Trudeau the Elder, Pierre Trudeau. And uh, I can't think of a country in the world that has given less thought to what we might do internationally. And you probably can recall that in the last federal election, when there was to be a debate on uh, foreign policy uh, at the Monk School. The Prime Minister declined That's to right. participate, and I thought that was shocking, but to me even worse than that, then the NDP and the Conservative leaders said, we don't want to talk about foreign policy either. So there was no discussion. That tells you how far down it is, and I think it helps explain to us why we don't right. get anywhere when we try to get the uh, a seat uh, on the UN Security Council, and why in the world, whatever we think about how nice and good we are as a people, the world doesn't really care. They don't hate us, uh, Simi, but they just don't think about us. But what does it mean to do a review? Does that mean that we hold hearings? Does it mean that we talk to people? Like, what does that mean? 
Well, there are a number of different ways, of course, you can do it. Uh, Some people have suggested a royal commission. I think that would be too much. It costs a fortune, takes a long time, and uh, you uh, get uh, uh, some uh, people who are maybe not representative of Canada, but are representative of the elites in Canada presiding over the whole process. I think we need a looser approach, a review that consults with Canadians. Maybe there's some kind of road show that goes to 10, 15 Canadian communities, a city the size of Vancouver. Maybe you could have it in two or three different places in Vancouver. You could try right. in the south. You could uh, uh, try somewhere uh, in the uh, Fraser River Valley, and you could try in downtown Vancouver, something like that, where anybody who's interested can come and give their opinion and listen to a group of people, a small group, that would give options uh, for Canada. Uh, And then out of that, uh, go somewhere. There are a number of private groups that are planning to do this. The federal government also says a review is in the offing. Hmm. My fear with the federal government, because I already sort of hear it, is that they're going to appoint people that are going to say exactly what they want, and it's what the world doesn't want from us. And that is that we are going to our number one priority in foreign affairs for the last few years has been uh, a feminist foreign policy with gender equality and gender balance. And these may be very worthy issues that Canadians are concerned about, but they are not going to achieve much for Canada internationally because the motorcycle gang of nations doesn't want to talk about this stuff. Right. Matthew, listen, thank you very much for your time. Oh, you're most welcome. Appreciate that. Matthew Fisher is a military journalist, Global News commentator. If you want to read some of the work and the piece that he's talking about, head to our website, globalnews.ca, and you can find it there.